Uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote uh, to the, uh, a church in a city called Thessalonica, which is in Greece. And uh, you can read the story in Acts 17 of how Paul helped to start this church, was there just for a few weeks and then was, had to leave quite quickly the city. And then a little while later, he wrote this letter to them to encourage them and to serve them and to help them. Uh, and today we're going uh, to read the last uh, four verses. We're going to finish the book. Uh, we actually missed a bit, which we're going to go back to in uh, next week. So we haven't quite finished, but I'm going to read the end of the book today. And this is, you might find in your Bible that there would be a header above this section which would say something like final instructions, uh, which might sound a little, bit, a little bit clinical, a bit like you know, the small print on the, the back of a box of paracetamol or something like that. Uh, it can feel a, a bit, uh, something that we can just sort of skip over and ignore and not take too seriously. But uh, for the Apostle Paul, he loved these dear brothers and sisters Earlier in the book, it says that he had a great desire to see them again face to face. I'm sure many of us feel that same great desire. There are many people, perhaps family, perhaps friends, that you just haven't been able to see since the start of this year. And you're feeling a great desire to see them again. And that's the same emotion that Paul would have been carrying in his heart for this church. He was yearning to see them again, to be able to tell of uh, his wonderful saviour, to be with his friends again. So when Paul writes this letter, when he gives them these final instructions, they come right from his heart. So let me read them to you now. This is from verse 25 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we know that when we encounter you, everything in our life change. I thank you so much for those stories that we've just heard on video just some of our dear friends telling about how they met you and encountered you and you've just turned their life upside down or you've just revealed your love to them where from all their pain and brokenness, the difficulties of their life, they've come to find a perfect saviour, a friend and a father in you. I just want to pray your blessing over those four dear brothers and sisters today that they would know as we just read in that, those verses, they'd know your grace with them today. That they'd know you, Holy Spirit, at work, helping to strengthen them, to grow them, uh, teaching them right in the, in the depths of their heart what it is to follow you and to love you. We pray that they'd know your power, your strength for the mission that you've called each of them to. We pray that we would be able to embrace them as part of our church family part of the body of Christ together, that we'd be able to serve them and they'd be able to serve us. 
We pray as we look at these verses today that you would speak to us, remind us of your great love and compassion for us. Help us to become more like you, Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. Between the uh, 13th and the 15th of February 1945, towards the end of the Second World War, the British and American Air Force bombed the city of Dresden in eastern Germany. Over three days, there were four different raids. Uh, it's known now as a, the firestorm of Dresden. Uh, 25,000 people all died, and uh, the city centre, an area of six and a half square kilometres, was uh, ended up in complete and total ruins. And in very much in the centre of this city, I've been to Dresden a few years ago, and I've walked into the square in the middle of the city, and there's a church building there called the Frauenkirche, right in the centre of the city. Uh, and the, the city of Dresden is by the ri river Elbe, I think it's called. Uh, and as you go down this river, you can see all the beautiful uh, uh, kind of cityscape with this church right at its very centre. It's a famous historic building that was very much loved by all the citizens of that city. Now you can see the, the church just there in, in ruins. It actually survived the bombing raid, but a few days later, the, the heat storm that came up from all the bombing, the heat was so intense that the building literally just crumbled to the ground, and all that was left was these two walls on the, on the side there. The church was completely ruined. And then in 1993, they began to rebuild the church, but they began to rebuild the church with a particular vision. They didn't want to build a completely new building. They wanted to keep it as close to the original building as they could. And they went so far in doing that that they used uh, 8,000 of the bricks from that, that pile of rubble. You can see the new rebuilt church there. They took 8,000 of these burnt, broken bricks and they began to rebuild the church. They found the remains of the altar, which would have been in the center of the building, which was smashed into two and a half thousand pieces. And they painstakingly took each piece and reconstructed it at the center of the church. On the top of the spire is a cross. Uh, and they couldn't f find the remains of the cross. So they asked someone to make a new one. And they went to a silversmith in England whose grandfather had been involved in the raids and had felt a permanent guilt all his life over what he'd done to this city. So his grandson made a cross that now sits uh, up there. You can see it on the top of the building there. A beautiful story of reconciliation of, and of restoration. I think this gives us a bit of a picture of what God has decided the, the church, the people of God, is supposed to be like. There's a story in the Old Testament of your Bibles uh, in the book of Nehemiah where God calls Nehemiah to go back to the city of Jerusalem. The people have been in exile and he's called to go back and to begin to rebuild the city, starting by rebuilding the walls of the city. And there are some opponents that want to stand against him and stop him from doing this work. And one of them says to him, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that. Again, it's a prophetic picture of what God wants to do 
is he wants to build a glorious city, a glorious house, a glorious temple, a people called to worship and to follow him. And what God does is he takes people just like me, just like you, just like those four people we saw get baptised. He takes regular normal people. He takes hurt and broken people. People that don't feel worthy of his love sometimes. People that carry sometimes a sense of guilt and shame, fear, loneliness, worries, concerns, whatever's going on in your heart. God sees all of that and yet he loves you the same. And he's chosen to add you in, as it talks about in 1 Peter, as a living stone in this new temple that he's building. See, the church isn't a building. We're here in the Vondelkirk. This isn't, this isn't the church. It's a church building. The church is the people of God. The church isn't an institution, an organization. We're not some great big conglomerate spreading all over the world. We're the, the people of God. These broken, burnt stones, living stones, called together the chosen, dear, precious people of God. And another picture that God uses to describe the family is, as firstly, as a, this building, this living stone, as a, a body, all different limbs and parts all joined together, as it talks about in Romans 12. And a family, a family. So when Paul writes this letter to them, he's not speaking as the CEO of a big corporate company, you know, addressing one of his franchises in a particular city. He's not talking as some kind of displaced entrepreneur. He's talking as, as a father who loves these people dearly, as a father in a family who cares for them. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says that we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of our own children. Such intimate family language. He dresses them, I was like a mother with you, nursing a newborn baby. You know, when you see a, someone who's just had a child, pushing them around in the, the pram, and they kind of gently pull them out, hold them close to their chest, care for them, nurse them, look after them. That's how Paul was with them. That's what the people of God are supposed to be like. That's how we're supposed to love one another and care for one another. All these different broken stones pulled together into his family. And Paul thought like that. Paul, who wrote this letter, that's the way he thought because that's how he'd learned it from Jesus. That was how Jesus was. There's a startling uh, a section of the Bible we're going to put up on the screen now from Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus is addressing some of his disciples about, uh, uh, and someone uh, uh, says to him, your, your family are, are outside and they're trying to get in. Let me find the verses for us so I can just read them to us. It says, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of the, my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's kind of a startling thing to say. It could even sound like a bit of a harsh thing for Jesus to say. And if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which tell the story of Jesus' life, time and again you'll come across things that Jesus said that will hit you and you think, what on earth did he mean by that? Is he, is he just trying to offend people? Is he just being rude? You see, what Jesus is saying is that spiritual relationships, relationships in the family of God that he's called us into, are more important than physical ones. Which, again, that can sound like a, quite an abrupt, uh, perhaps even a rude thing for me to say. It's a big statement. But you see, what Jesus is saying is that when you become a follower of Jesus, like those four dear brothers and sisters have, and they've declared it to us by getting baptised, what happens is that something deep and profound, a change takes place where you go from darkness into light, from the kingdom of heaven, into, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven, where you, you become part of the family of God. You become a co-heir with Christ. That's all of a sudden, God is your father. And that is more true and more real than the earthly, physical relationships around you. Your relationship with God is more, it, although it can sometimes seem distant, obscure, like an ethereal thing, it is more real than any physical relationship you'll ever have. And it's more important and it will change you from the inside out completely and that doesn't it doesn't negate the earthly family what Jesus isn't saying that earthly physical families are bad in Matthew 15 just a few chapters later we read where Jesus kind of underlines one of the ten commandments when he says honor your father and mother and Paul does that later in one of his epistles as well we see uh, when Jesus is on the cross being crucified that he calls out to John, one of his disciples who wrote one of the Gospels and, and tells John, please look after my mother. He puts Mary into John's care because he loved her so dearly. One of Jesus' own brothers, James, ends up becoming a key leader in the church. Jesus loved his family. He's not saying don't love your families. Jesus says, honour them, honour your father and mother. Love your family. The Bible is big on our family relationships. But what it says to us is the church family isn't just a, a club. It's not just a, a kind of a group of people that get together once a week or watch a video once a week. We're, we're a family. It's real and profound. It changes how we interact and what happens is that uh, the, the disciples who go on to write some of the Bible, they, they take this seriously. We read about, uh, about how they encourage their churches to earnestly love one another. That's what the language that Peter uses, earnestly love one another. In Colossians 2, Paul says that you're knit together in love that the family of God is kind of woven together in love, incredibly intimate language. And again, they're copying the sort of way that Jesus spoke. See, Jesus was 
incredibly intimate with those he considered to be his family, the people of God. In the, the Gospel of John gives us a few pictures of Jesus doing that. In John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus' death and then his resurrection a few days later, we see Jesus weeping over the loss of a dear friend. In John 13, we see Jesus kneeling down to wash his disciples' feet. An incredible example of just servant-hearted, intimate leadership. Later on in that chapter, we see them sitting around having a meal together and, and John reclining, leaning back against Jesus, just as they're sitting at the table, just nestling against him. Incredibly intimate. After Jesus' resurrection, we see Jesus gathers his disciples and they have breakfast together. Jesus makes them breakfast on the beach. They, they, they acted as, as a family. They loved one another intimately and dearly and, and closely. So where does, that, where does that come from? This intimacy, this unity that we see all through the Bible. We see Paul writing with that tone in 1 Thessalonians, this book that we've been studying these last few months, where he says that he greatly desired to see them face to face, that he was like a nursing mother amongst them. Paul loved these people intimately. Now, where does that come from? Well, we have a clue here in these verses that we, let, that we read. The very last verse of the whole book of this letter says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. It's quite telling that those are the final words, the, the sort of the benediction, the closing statement that Paul wants to give to them. Grace be with you which echoes the very first verse of the book, if you go back to the beginning. Paul wants them to know about the grace of God because that's where our unity as the people of God, that's where it comes from. That's why we can have an intimate, affectionate love for one another. Because so often in the world around us, we find unity with people that are like me. You know, people that, that, you know, the same stage of life, the same age, from the same country, that look the same, that wear the same type of clothes, that listen to the same kind of music, that watch the same kind of movies. We find a connection with people that are like us. We want to hang around with them. We find a unity there. Or with people that like me. You know, when you find people that like you, it's quite easy to like them back. But actually, that's the, the, the unity we find in Christ goes much deeper than that. As the people of God, it's not that we're just all a bit like one another, that we all have the same hobby, so we all kind of get along. But our unity is formed deeply in the grace of God. See, what every church needs is more of the grace of God. We don't need better systems better pastors, better cameras and TV equipment. All those things are important, but what we ultimately need is more of the grace of God, more of his grace. Because what that will do is that will knit us together in love. In Romans 12, it talks about us being members of one body. That's the illustration it uses of the church, that 
someone's like a finger, another person is like the elbow, someone's like the knee. We all need one another, we all support one another, but the body that we're part of is Christ. We're all part of him. That in our salvation, we've been added into a family, the family of God. We have God as our father, but we have many dear brothers and sisters that we can love and know. In Romans 8, it says that we're co-heirs with Christ. If I want to give you some homework this week, I'd say read Romans 8. Just let those words just marinate in your heart. What does it mean to be a co-heir with Christ? I could talk about that all day. In Ephesians 2, it says, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're no longer just this disparate group of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. We are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household, the family of God. See, what the gospel does is it takes all these different broken stones, all these different people that perhaps normally would would hate one another or perhaps at least not want to be in the same room together and it brings us all together and the gospel knits us it weaves us together in his love you've been rescued into something you've been rescued into unity you might just say well, I don't I don't really like people I I like Jesus can't I just be a a Christian by myself I just watch this video every week by myself and I'll never have any interaction with people. That's okay, isn't it? Well, no, it's not. You've been rescued and called into something, the people of God, called into a family and called to pursue intimacy with those people, relationship with those people, to love those people. And we love them not because they're like us or not because they even like us. We love them because Jesus loves them. That's such a helpful lesson to learn. When you, when you fall out with someone in the church, and that happens, it will happen, because we're these broken, burnt stones. None of us are perfect. We'll let one another down. We'll disappoint one another. When that happens, a good tip is when you're feeling just a bit fractious, a bit let down, a bit hurt. Why did that person do that? Just remind your heart of how much Jesus loves that person that they're a child of God, just like you are. The same way each of us need his forgiveness and his grace. So does that people, that person you're in disagreement with. Remind yourself of what the gospel has done in their heart and then what it's done in your heart. And that's a brilliant grounds to come back together in reconciliation and unity. And wonderfully, this... Intimacy, this unity that we have in the grace of God, it, it puts into action. That's what Paul's saying in these final instructions. It's kind of, it's like a, when, when you've, uh, just on your way out of the door, you might turn around and just say, oh, don't forget to do this. You know, don't forget to, to turn the heating off. Don't, don't forget to lock the doors. Paul's kind of final instructions as he's just about to finish this letter are, are important. And, and, and I think it's important and it's quite striking that he doesn't give them like a big long to-do list of kind of household laundry and things. Is he talks about some quite intimate things that they should do together as the people of God. First of all, he says that they should pray. 
Actually, he asks for their, their prayers for him. Elsewhere in this letter, he's been praying for them. And he closes by saying, brothers, pray for us. There's such a humility in how Paul leads this people. He's saying, look, I need your prayers too. And there's a wonderful intimacy you'll find in both praying with and praying for other believers. You'll find that's one of the ways that as the family of God you get knit together is by praying with other people. Because I've noticed it's very hard to dislike people that you've prayed with. When you pray with someone, you, you hear their heart. This is in the book of the James, James that out, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. I think that's most true when it comes to prayer. When people pray, you, you, hear, you hear their heart. The things they pray for, you'll see some of the burdens that they're carrying. You'll hear some of the mission that they feel called to. Some of the people in this city, they want to see, uh, find liberty. You'll, you'll hear that come out as they pray. You get to hear people's hearts as you pray with other brothers and sisters. I'd encourage you to find as much time in your life to pray with other people. We can do that at the moment. You can have two guests in your home. You can go out on the, uh, into the city and, and, and meet someone. You can buy someone. I brought someone coffee this week. We had a walk around the park. We can all, we can all do that at the moment. I'd encourage you to do that. Dan was talking about it a few weeks ago of how he's formed with two other people and they're regularly meeting to pray together. I'd encourage us to keep finding ways with one or two people to pray together because you'll find your love for those people will increase. You'll find that it's you're putting that intimacy and unity that the church is called to, you're putting into action. Secondly, what happens, what Paul instructions to do he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. See, intimacy in the family of God, it will, it will greet one another. Now, this isn't, it often seems like a bit of a bizarre verse that we just skip past. You know, greet, greet one another with a holy kiss. What's that all about? But actually, this is quite an important verse because it appears not once, not twice, but five times in the Bible at the end of the book of Romans at the end of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, here at the end of 1 Thessalonians, and then Peter writes about it at the end of 1 Peter. Five times it appears. When the Bible says something five times, you think we need to pay attention to this. What, what's the Bible trying to tell us here? And it's, I don't think it's trying to instigate some kind of ritual. That's often how the church is interpreted to it. When we take communion, we should all make a moment, we should all go and kiss the priest. It's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that it's calling us to physically express the intimacy, the union we have with one another in Christ. See, what you do with your body will affect your soul. When you greet someone, you're expressing something that's true, uh, not just in your heart, but, but true in Christ. He's joined us together. We have union with one another through and in Jesus Christ. So when we greet one another, we're just expressing that. Now that will look, we have to read this verse uh, in light of the different culture that we live in now as opposed to 2,000 years ago. So for many of us, holy kissing might be a bit inappropriate. But there are other ways that we can greet one another. 
might be to hug or to shake someone's hand. And now again, we have to read that through the situation we're in right now. So it might be a good elbow tap or a kick on the heel or whatever we're allowed to do. But I'd encourage you to to greet one another uh, as and when we're allowed to and what that looks like in practice. But to greet one another, we express the union we have together in Jesus Christ. And one encouragement, one practical thing that we can put into action is we're aware in six weeks' time or so, Christmas is coming up. And we have an opportunity to to greet and care for one another in the church, where normally at this time of year would be a big family occasion and uh, lots of people in our church would would be going to go see their parents or to see other members of their family. And this year, for, for obvious reasons, many of us won't be able to travel. But I think that's a great opportunity for us as a church. Just think about how we can greet and invite one another into each other's homes to share dinner together on Christmas Day, to share gifts and presents with one another, to really be the family of God. Because this, when he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, uh, it, it, in their time, 2,000 years ago, that would have most commonly taken place when you entered into someone's home. We see it happens to, to Jesus. It actually doesn't happen to Jesus. When he's in Simon the Tanner's house, he, he rebukes him for not having kissed him when he entered his home. That was something that you did when you invited people that you loved into your home in biblical times. You would greet them with a kiss. And I, I think maybe that's something we can do over this Christmas period is, is to greet and invite people into your home or somehow include them in Christmas, particularly those in our church family who would be a long way from home and family. Let's do our best to really love people well in this season. The next one, our intimacy we have in Christ together, it ministers the word. Paul says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, what he's doing, he's given them an instruction to, what he probably means is to read it together when they gather together as a church community. There probably would have been some people in their church that would have been uh, illiterate. Uh, They wouldn't have had printing presses and computers to email this letter out. So they lived in an an oral culture. So he's uh, encouraging them to do that, to read and to study it together. But I think there's an encouragement for us here that this verse expresses something of the power of ministering the word of God to one another. Let me read to you a quote from a German theologian who was murdered by the Nazis at the end of the Second World War called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this, the Christ in their own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. Their own hearts are uncertain. Those of their brothers and sisters are sure. At the same time, this also clarifies that the goal of all Christian community is to encounter one another as bringers of the message of salvation. Sometimes as a believer, you'll be unsure or uncertain about lots of things. I found it such a great comfort where other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ have shared with me a verse. Someone uh, WhatsApp me a verse this week. It was a great encouragement to me. Sometimes when we can doubt, have questions even about our faith, that's when other brothers and sisters can come alongside us and help us 
to see the truth. Help us to see who Jesus really is. That's something that we get to do together as we help to reveal Christ to, to one another. It's striking that even Lula last week was talking about sanctification, what it is to become more like Jesus. But the way that Paul writes to them is he didn't write them to them as individual believers. He wrote to them as a family, as a community together. Our sanctification, our becoming more like Jesus is a community exercise, something we get to live out together. One of the ways we do that is by ministering the word to one another, by doing Bible studies together, by sending people WhatsApps with a Bible verse just to encourage them, by the, the devotional group that we have on WhatsApp where every day someone will share a bit, of, a bit of scripture and some reflections upon that. We get to minister the word to one another. Finally, we see here that Paul says to them, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Have this letter read to all the believers. The intimacy, the union we have is for all who are in the family of God. There's no discrimination here, no favoritism. Paul doesn't say, well, those people have been well behaved, so greet them. Or those people are your leaders, minister the word to them. It's not how Paul never thinks like that. As we read already in Ephesians 2, there are no strangers or aliens now, but fellow citizens, fellow saints, members of the household of God together. We're, we're called to love one another no matter, no matter what. And you might think, well, that person, they're just not like me. I just don't, I just don't click with that person. I just, that, that's not gospel thinking. <laughs> you need to realign your head and your heart to what the Bible teaches. See, grace doesn't have favorites. Grace doesn't have a hierarchy, a structure in mind. It doesn't discriminate. Grace welcomes us just as we are. Remember the source of our unity, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, in our, our Christian unity is a beautiful uh, act of restoration. Remember back to that image at the start of that broken church in church building in Dresden, restored together. That's what the church is supposed to be. That we'll find unity by slowly and sometimes painstakingly welcoming in broken, hurt people and gently and carefully rebuilding the family of God into the, the bride of Christ, what he's called us to be. And finally, the, the unity, the intimacy we can have as the family of God together, it has a goal in mind, and that is Jesus himself. To be a believer in Jesus, you're called into a, a unity, first and foremost, with him, with God. That's always our first priority. A little tip for you, if you're in our church and if you're, if you're looking for a relationship, you think, I'd love to get married, I'd love to find a partner. We're told in our world to look for so many different things in people. You know, the right kind of, uh, the right hairline, the right sort of teeth. You know, someone that makes you laugh or smile. There's superficial things, there's more deep things that we're told to look for. The thing that you need to look for is someone that's going to, love Jesus more than they love you. That will be the most important thing in any relationship. 
Because if they love you more than they love Jesus, then you'll end up becoming some kind of replacement God for them. And when you let them down and hurt them, it will, it will crush them because you've become God to them. Or if they love themselves more than they love Jesus or you, then you've also got a problem for more obvious reasons, perhaps. Find someone that loves Jesus. I know that's so true in my marriage and my family. In our family life, things are always working best when Joe and I are loving and focusing on finding intimacy with Christ before anything else. We're better husband and wife, we're better parents, we're better friends, when that's the goal that we have in mind. And all of, us, all of us can help one another to seek and to pursue this unity with Christ. And for some of us, this corona, COVID season we're living through, it might actually be a bit of an opportunity for you to carve out some time where we can't have perhaps the intimacy with one another that we would normally get to enjoy. Pursue intimacy with Jesus. Jesus isn't in lockdown. There's no social distancing when it comes to Jesus. You can come and engage with him today. You can welcome into his heart, him into your heart today. You can come and receive his grace and his goodness today. Let me pray for us and then we're going to respond by singing some, some songs of worship and coming to Jesus in our hearts again. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the the union we have with you and the resulting intimacy that we can have with you. We thank you for the church, the people of God, all these broken stones formed together to have this unity together, to share it with one another, to be intimate and to care for one another. But all of that are signposts pointing towards the great intimacy we can have with you, Jesus. And I, I want that to be true for us as a church, as a people here in this city. But the thing that most marks us out, the thing that make, most uh, uh, makes us unique is our love for you, our enjoyment of your grace, that we really know what it is to know true liberty in you. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would make that truth come alive in our hearts today. Help us right now as we Respond by singing, help us to draw our hearts to you again, we pray, God. Amen.